greetings, greetings, and welcome to the show. This is Wrong Place, Right Crime. I am your host, Frank Zafiro, and this is an open and shut episode with Dan Bronson. Well, it was supposed to be open and shut, but uh, Dan is such an interesting guy with so many cool stories. I was at a loss at where to cut 20 minutes out of our discussion uh, without losing things that I thought were fascinating about uh, not only his writing, but also his career in the movie business. So this one's a little longer than the usual open and shut. I don't think you'll be disappointed in the extra time at all. Uh, So we will get to that in just a moment and talk to Dan. But uh, first, I do want to remind you that Wrong Place or Right Crime is proudly sponsored by Down and Out Books. Down and Out Books is a mid-sized publisher of crime fiction, most of it from the darker and grittier end of the spectrum. If this is something that you enjoy, you can find out more at their website, downandoutbooks.com. That's downandoutbooks.com. Down and Out Books, take the journey with us. All right, as I mentioned, Dan Bronson is a guy who has had a career uh, in and around the movie business, among other things, and he has a lot of great stories to tell. He also has written a uh, noir detective novel set in the golden age of film, uh, and so we're going to talk about that as well. Why don't we start right now? Well, hey, Dan, welcome to the show. Uh, Thank you very much. Delighted to be here. So I get a lot of guests on here who are newer writers and that they're having written their first book and, and, and we have a conversation about that journey, but you do not really fit the mold of most of those, uh, newer writers in that being a novelist is really, uh, as we were talking about, uh, off mic, you know, your, your third or fourth, uh, uh, lifetime, your third or fourth career, uh, you've had quite a lot of interesting uh, jobs in the past that I I think it'd be fun to talk about before we get into someone to watch over me. Well, I started as a college professor. Actually, I I wanted to be a writer. And uh, I I took creative writing in in college, sat next to Jeffrey Fiskin, uh, who went on to become a major uh, screenwriter. He was great, and so I hated him because I was terrible. Uh, (laughs) Spoke to him not too long ago and confessed how I felt about him at the time. Uh, And I I finally decided, okay, if I can't do it, I'll teach it. Boy, there's there's a cliche for you. Uh, But I was very good as a teacher. I trained as an actor uh, in in Hollywood in in my early years. I starred in all of our high school plays. And uh, I used all of that when, when I became... Uh, a teacher, taught creative writing, Shakespeare, American literature. And even though I'd never had a course in it, I created a film course and then a film program. I uh, got a grant from the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences to bring a director to campus, Lamont Johnson, one of, one of the greats known mostly for his, uh, his amazing television films, among them The Execution of Private Slovic, uh, That Certain Summer, My Sweet Charlie, we just, we hit it off. He got off this plane with 300 other people. Neither one of us had seen the other. We walked right to each other. And I took him off to a, a campus bar uh, from the airport. And we were immediately arguing about which had been the best movie of that year. We bonded uh, over our disagreement. Uh, at any rate, at the end of it all, he, he said, Dan. No, he said, Dan. He had this incredible radio voice. 
come to Hollywood. I see you as a successful producer in five years. So I uh, managed to get a grant from the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences to go to Hollywood as an intern. And uh, so now we're getting I, into life number two. Yeah, life number two. Okay. Just, life I'm just keeping two. track on, on the sideline here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I had a sponsor, George Seaton, was introduced to him by the son of the morality czar of Hollywood, uh, <laughs> who was a mutual friend. Uh, George, by the way, was the writer director of Miracle on 34th Street. He was, in fact, the original Chris Kringle. Uh, one of the kindest, most generous people you could ever hope to meet. Also did The Country Girl, Airport, some big, big films. And uh, unfortunately, when I got to Hollywood, George was dying. Uh, I got to meet him in person only once for about five minutes. He was on his deathbed, and even then he managed to make a joke. Uh, so he turned me over to the uh, vice president of the studio, this guy named Al Dorskin, who who bought the studio uh, for <clears throat> the head of the company. And he was, he's, I'm convinced he's the guy they modeled the shark and jaws after. That's his <laughs> dead rattlesnake guys. You know? <laughs> he, uh, he gave me a pass to the studio and he said, you're on your own, kid. Well, I managed to introduce myself to Verna Fields, the editor of Jaws, who was Steven Spielberg's mentor and who mentored many, many, career. She was known as Mother Cutter, uh, the, the great film editor, Mother Cutter. And Verna put me on, on this, uh, this Gil Cates film. Not a very good movie, but I was there from beginning to end. I was, I was in the editing room when they wouldn't let Gil in the editing room. Uh, learned a heck of a lot about the movies. What, what movie was that? It's called The Last Married Couple in America. It starred George Siegel, Natalie Wood, Dom DeLuise, uh, Excuse me. <laughs> There's some timing there. Dom DeLuise yeah. in the clown horn. <laughs> That's fitting. <laughs> At any rate, uh, I also got to know the story editor at Universal. And uh, he ultimately ended up offering me a job as a, as a reader. And I resigned my tenured professorship and moved to Hollywood find, only to find that... Um, there was something called the Story Analyst Guild that would not let me accept the job that I'd been offered. Uh, you had to be a member of the Guild in uh, order to uh, have a job, but you had to have a job to be a member of the Guild. And I went uh, four months basically homeless, uh, living on peanut butter and bananas on, on $10 a week that I'd earned writing a, uh, an article uh, about Marty Ritt uh, for current biography, which years later when I actually met Marty Ritt, I found out was his favorite thing that had ever been written about him. It meant a great deal to me. This maverick, this rebel, had actually read the thing I, I wrote about him. At any rate, eventually I, uh, I got the job. And I, through many ups and downs, through a long roller coaster ride in Hollywood, I became top reader at, at Paramount and then executive uh, story editor uh, at Paramount. Uh, so for, for folks who don't know what a reader is, uh, you're, you're the person who sifts through uh, the scripts and decides which ones get produced or which ones get further consideration. Or, I mean, you're like, uh, you start with the slush pile and then the higher up the chain you are, you get the curated ones or how's that work exactly? Well, you're, that's, that's a big part of your work. You're, you're a clearinghouse. 
there, there's this group of executives. They're all vice presidents, creative executives. Um, they're the creative group. And it's, it's maybe six, eight people altogether. They're the ones who decide which movies get made and then who supervise the making of the movies. They're the ones to whom producers and agents submit screenplays. And you, you call the guy up. You say, I got this great screenplay. I would like to have you take a look at it. He said, terrific. Uh, I'll look at it tonight and get back to you tomorrow. That's if you're important. Uh, if you're just anyone, it can take a couple of weeks or a month. But they don't look at it. Uh, the joke in Hollywood is executives don't read because they can't. No, they, <laughs> they, they don't read because they're too busy. What they do is send the screenplay or, or the novel uh, down to the story department where it's assigned to a reader. The reader will then do maybe a half to one page synopsis and an evaluatory comment and a box score, you know, dialogue, excellent, uh, plot sucks, structure, that kind of thing, mm -hmm. and a recommendation. And uh, the recommendation everyone wants, of course, is consider. You get very few considers, and, and you've, you get a lot of not for us. Uh, and the executive then gets on the phone the next day and said, I took a look at your script, and then, then he'd be reading from the, the evaluatory comment that you made as if it was <laughs> thinking about it. Well, I once made this point at UCLA. I was invited to, uh, to talk uh, about story departments and screenplays uh, over at UCLA. And there was another uh, person on the program, he's a big guy, Honcho in the Writers Guild, well-known writer. And after I, I explained how this worked to the students, he said, well, Dan, what you say is true for most writers, but some of us reach a point in our career when we, where we can demand that the executive read the work himself. Why, just last week, I submitted something to Tom Mount, who was then the ex head uh, of uh, production at Universal. And Tom got back to me the very next day. Well, I was very gracious and did not explain to him that I had read his screenplay at night. <laughs> the report so Tom could get back to him the very next day. So that's that's the primary activity. Uh, and you story. rose to the top of that food chain. Yeah, where you end up doing legal comparisons. I once did a legal comparison between the original Peter Pan and the Peter Pan that Steven Spielberg should have done. Uh, it um, it ultimately didn't get made, but I I ended up. Uh, conferring with him, Kathy Kennedy, his producer, his agent. I, I wrote the story notes for Top Gun. Was that a consider? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, the first screenplay of, of Top Gun is much better than the movie. Really? Uh, How was it different? Much rid oh, well, the characters were so much richer. It, it, it'd be in, in the hands of the producers to whom it was assigned, it uh, became a huge success, but I think not nearly as good as, as there. And uh, by the way, that's often the case. Uh, most of the time, you know, I, I'll put it this way. The only, the only film made from screenplays that I recommended that was as good as a screenplay was Witness. Oh, yeah. uh, Fantastic film. The others all got worse uh, because it's creativity by committee. Mm -hmm. Everyone knows better than the writer uh, mm -hmm. what, what the movie should be. You've got, the, you've got the studio executives, you've got the director, you've got the actors themselves. Everyone knows better than the writer. So it's, it's not unusual to see this, this happen. 
you know, I was always a huge film kid. I mean, I, mean, I lived in, in a town of about 200,000 or just actually I lived in a small town of about 2,000, about 20 minutes from a town of 200 uh, up, up in Washington State, Spokane, Washington. And there were plenty of times once I had my own car where there wasn't a movie playing in all of the cinemas in the town that I hadn't gone to see at least once. It was just what I did. And I loved, I loved movies. I still do. Um, although I've really turned on to good television as well in the past decade and a half or more. But my point is this, that whenever I saw written and directed by about a movie, I always figured I had a better shot at it being a good movie because, or at least a movie of singular vision because those two things were combined. Um, and I wonder if, was I out to lunch or was, uh, was young me onto something or, or what? <laughs> young you was dead on. That's absolutely right. And, and that's almost every writer aspires to directing his own material because it's the only way you can control what you've done. I, I have kind of a funny story about that. Before I ever got involved in the movies, when I was still uh, a college professor, we brought um, a uh, Hollywood screenwriter and novelist to campus. His name was uh, uh, Adam Kennedy. He wrote a, a book called The Domino Principle, which was actually made into a, a movie. Well, I I got to uh, know Jack and his wife pretty well. Well, I, his real name was Jack Kennedy, but obviously that wasn't going to work. <laughs> <laughs> for the public uh, audience, so he became Adam Kennedy. At any rate, his wife told me uh, a story about this movie he'd written. Uh, I think it was called The Dove. And uh, they went to the premiere and they watched about five minutes of it. And she turned to Jack and she said, Jack, did you write any of this? And Jack <laughs> said to her, God, I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> That is pretty much the experience of the writer. Oh my God, that's funny. Uh, Did you write any of this? I think I wrote the title. Yeah, (laughs) probably not because they changed that repeatedly. Let me ask you this uh, before we move on. I want to hear about your next uh, step in uh, your next life. Uh, But is there a movie that you're most proud of for having kind of pulled from the scrap heap or from obscurity or, or something that maybe people weren't so high on that you advocated for that ended up turning out to be a good film? Well, witness for one thing. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, I'm, I'm very proud that I had a role in, in, I, yeah. I went, I was, I was still a reader at the time. It wasn't story editor. I went to the story editor after I read it and said, I think I just committed professional suicide. I've uh, recommended a love story between a tough city cop and an Amish woman. <laughs> and, you know, uh, it was really an unlikely piece to, mm. to make it to the screen. So that's, as I said, the only movie made from things that I recommended that uh, uh, turned out to be as good as the script. I also played a, uh, a key role in getting uh, the Patsy Cline story. Sweet Dreams. Oh, yeah. Made. yeah. It was originally called Crazy. Wonderful, wonderful screenplay. I had recommended it when I was at Universal, and then it came to me again. Uh, well, it came to uh, the, one of the executives at Paramount, ended up on my desk, and I recommended it again. And again, they didn't go with it. But I got a call from Bernie Schwartz, the producer. Uh, he had produced The Coal Miner's Daughter. I mean, he was heavily into to country music. And uh, he asked me 
if uh, he could show Jessica Lang my coverage uh, of of Sweet Dreams. That was crazy. And yeah, it took me about a split second to decide that. I said, yes, of mm-hmm. course. Well, Jessica. She was fresh off of uh, Postman Always Rings Twice and, and, and that stage of her career at that point, if I remember right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, she was she was a very hot actress. Uh, and she committed to making the movie on, on the basis, not of the script, but of my coverage. Oh, so wow. I'm, I'm very proud of that <laughs> It was uh, a good movie. Ed uh, Harris was in it. He was good in it as well. And of course, the music uh, is always going to be good when you're talking about yeah, Nancy Klein. Yeah, well, unfortunately, the movie didn't turn out to be as good as the script because of bad piece of casting. Uh, in in the latter third of the film, uh, Ed Harris starts knocking Jessica Lang around. I mean, he's uh, and you wonder... You know what, what's going on? What happened? Because it was this this really hot marriage. You know this this dynamic relation. Well, here's what happened. Uh, in the original story, she has an affair with her new producer, uh-huh. and he finds out, and that's that. Explains. But they cast such a wimpy actor as the new producer that no one could believe that uh, that she'd uh, leave Ed Harris. <laughs> for this, this, so they had to cut that out, and then you know it's it really it really. So hurt. they just made Charlie a mean a mean guy, basically made him a yeah. wife beater. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Charlie Dick was suddenly uh, not the appealing personality mm-hmm. that he'd been. Ed Harris, by the way, was the star of one of my films, um, the last one. Uh, yeah, at any rate, uh, oh, and I, I guess this is my most infamous. Uh, I was I was the executive who supervised the initial stages of. Are you ready for this, Godfather Three? Uh, <laughs> I got I, I got to tell you, Dan, you're you're going to be disappointed to hear this, but I am actually not a Godfather Three hater. I actually think it has its place. Is it as good as the first two? Of course not. But I mean, how you know? I mean, how can you know, when you're when you when you have a ten and a ten, and then you bring a movie in, and it and you know if it's a seven, it feels like a three, you know. So uh, I I think it gets a little too much hate, but that's just well, me. A lot of a lot of people do hate it. You're right. <laughs> you should have seen the script that I developed. It was it was a very different thing. Better uh, or worse? Oh oh, much much better. Uh, I I had just been promoted to executive story editor. An old friend of mine, Tom Wright. Uh, who had been an executive at Paramount, uh, he was working with this lower-level mafiosa, guy by the name of uh, Nick, Nick Marino. Uh, he's the guy who ran a chain of porno theaters in New York. And he was, he was helping Nick write his autobiography. And in the course of it, he found out what the uh, mafia had been up to in the period of time subsequent to Godfather II. And he, he wrote a treatment, and he asked me to take a look at it. He, he said he wanted to submit it to Don Steele, who was the head of production at the mm-hmm. time. And I read this thing, and I thought, oh, my God. I mean, he, he hit all the beats. Uh, it, it, it had the same structure as the first two movies. It would have been a perfect completion. You know, it would have made a, tri- a real triad of the three films. By the way, I consider Godfather 1 and 2 the greatest together the greatest movie ever made. Uh, so this this was, anyhow, I, I called Tom up and I said, there's no way 
you're giving. I said, this is this is a great piece, but you're not giving it to Don Steele. You're giving it to me. I'm young. I'm hungry. I will set this up. And I, I went um, carefully through the whole exe- creative group one by one, starting with Don. Uh, got their support. We we go in for the big Monday morning creative group meeting, uh, supervised by Ned Tannen, who was uh, head of the studio. And uh, one by one, they they enthusiastically uh, supported uh, this this proposal. And we get around to Ned. And he said, "He says I don't like it. It's too expensive." Uh, I'll, t- I'll tell you one thing, uh, you're, you're, I'm, I'm not going to let you have any of the original actors except Pacino. I still haven't made back uh, Robert fucking Duvall's uh, salary for Tender Mercies. <laughs> Wait a second. What did, what did he just say? I, th- I think he just said he's going to let me make this. And he did. He says, your movie, you go make it. It was your job. You go lose it. Well, anyhow, <laughs> uh, he reluctantly approved this thing with that proviso. And then uh, turns out that Nick decides he's co-author of the treatment, and our deal is to be with both him and Tom. So I meet with with the two of them in the garden room at uh, at Paramount's commissary, and well, I meet Nick. He pulls up in his white Rolls Royce. He gets out in his ice cream suit, and he's as white as he is tall, and he talks like this. Uh, oh my God! Well, we're sitting there amongst some of the movers and shakers of town in the garden room. And I'm explaining to him that we've gotten the green light for the screenplay, but uh, it's with the proviso that the only member of the original cast that we can use is Al Pacino. And there's silence. And this guy stares at me. And he finally says, Well, Dan, you remember that line in Godfather 1? Been making you an offer you can't refuse? I like ours. In Godfather 2, if I can't deal with you, I'll deal with your estate. Oh, my God. He's threatening to kill me over casting. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. That's not funny, but that's hilarious. (laughs) Well, it wasn't funny to me at the time. Fortunately, right after that, I got a call from Jeffrey Katzenberg over at Disney. Uh, offering me a three-picture writing deal, and it was pretty easy for me to say yes. So oh my gosh! I, I threw the problem Marino into, into other hands, and unfortunately, along the way, they brought back Coppola and Puzo, who wrote this disappointing screenplay. And he also he had Winona Ryder to play the daughter. Yeah, she got, got sick though. Well, she was in love with Johnny Depp, and she really didn't want to. She wanted to go home. She didn't oh. want to shoot overseas. She wanted to be with Johnny, and he used that as an excuse to fire her. And he brought on his daughter, and she was so bad that when they shot her down on those steps, I stood up in the theater and cheered. Oh, my gosh. Uh, <laughs> much better oh. writer-director than, than actress. Yeah, she's, she's actually so really, really does really well behind the camera. Um, yeah. Well, so yeah. that's, and that takes me to the next stage of my career, which was writer-producer. And uh, had a lot of fun with that. Uh, what, are the high po- what are the high points there? What did you, uh, what did you take part in that, that you were really proud of or that is memorable? Well, uh, there, there was The Last Innocent Man, which was uh, a novel that I uh, optioned, film brights on it, with a partner. And... Uh, Eventually uh, sold to uh, to HBO. It uh, ended up starring Ed Harris, who was my casting suggestion. There were a number of 
steps in the, the whole process. It took several years to get this done. At one point, HBO, by the way, bought it, told me they didn't want to change anything. They just wanted to make the uh, lead actress a little sexier. Well, it turned out they wanted a lot more than that. I mean, we, we came to loggerheads. Uh, as a matter of fact, the uh, executive in charge was, I'm not a violent person. I'm a, a quiet, just an ordinary man. Uh, <laughs> but we got to the point where I almost jumped across his desk, took him by the shoulders and pounded his head against the wall. So outrageous were the things they wanted to do to my, it was what, what have they done to my song? Uh, <laughs> at any rate, in the midst of all of this, when it, it finally went uh, out to directors, I got a call from my agent saying that Robert Ellis Miller wanted to direct my screenplay. Well, Robert Ellis Miller had directed one of the films that brought me to Hollywood, The Heart is a Lonely Hunter. And he had just done Reuben Reuben. And I was thrilled to, to hear that. He later became a good friend. I met him at a, at a party. Some friends were talking to this, uh, this guy as the party was winding down. A uh, little guy with a beard, Van Dyke beard. And uh, as, as I came over to uh, chat with him as he was leaving, they said to him, well, we really love your work. And as he walked away, I said, well, what sort of work does he do? They said, oh, he's a, he's a director. I said, really? What did he direct? And they said, the heart is a lonely hunter. And before they got to Ruben, I, I was racing down the drive. I said, are you Robert Ellis Miller? Oh, my God. You directed two of my favorite films. Like I was a madman. But like I said, they get to friends. And before that happened, I got this call. Robert Ellis Miller wants to direct your script. And I, I was moved beyond description. Well, HBO turned him down. Why? Because he wanted to shoot the script uh, as written. So they ended up sending it around to others, uh, among them the guy who wrote The Front and the Molly Maguires, and he sent it back. He said, there's no way I'm going to rewrite this script. You should shoot it as written. They still went in. They put like four other writers on it. The last one was Ron Shelton, who wrote White Men Can't Jump, Tin Cup, wrote and I mean, a lot. Mm -hmm. Boulder, I think, too. And it's, it's still not my script, but... Uh, it became a huge success. The New York Times said that HBO had finally come of, of age, that they were finally making films of uh, a quality that they could be released in your neighborhood theater. So I'm very proud of that one. The other big success is, uh, is, is uh, Death of a Cheerleader. It's, uh, it was sort of my version of Dreiser's An American Tragedy. Uh, it was about a the poorest girl in a very rich community, based on a, a true story, based on a, a Rolling Stone article that took a look at this murder that had taken place up in a, a very wealthy Bay community. Poorest girl in a rich community who wanted it all in spite of the fact that she had nothing. She wanted to be a cheerleader. She wanted to be the in the best social club. She wanted to be the editor of the yearbook. And in a moment of madness, she ended up killing the girl who got it all. She was my Clyde Griffiths. It has... A, a very interesting history. Uh, there's there's so much, and we don't have time to discuss all the details. But what happened was uh, we cast Kelly Martin, wonderful actress, in the lead role of the killer. Uh, she was doing a series called Christie, and it was moved up and conflicted with our production schedule. So to keep her, we had to move uh, our production up. As a result, we lost our director. And the producer called me up and said, help. 
I've lost the director. We're in pre-production. Uh, I need I need someone to come in and and support me here. The first thing is we in those days television movies were considered the province of uh, women over thirty. Uh, your audience was women over thirty, so we had to have uh, a television actress with a high TVQ. Uh, he wanted Valerie Harper to come in and play the murderer's mother. I knew her from having worked on The Last Married Couple in America, which, where she was one of the co-stars. So I met with her and him, and I said to Valerie, now, in order to play this role, you're going to have to play against type. You're going to have to play against who you really are. You're a wonderful, outgoing person, very much like the character she played on television. Very generous person. I said, you're going to have to be chilly, controlled, tight. I told her about seeing Diana Rigg play Lady Macbeth, where at the beginning she was bolt upright. She had her hair pulled back so tight. Her, her eyes were, were strained uh, and her hands were clasped together. And by the third act, when she begins to break down, you know, her, her posture collapses, her hair is down, her hands are working, working, working. I said, that's the journey that you're going to have to take. And all the while, Steve, the producer, was saying, but you don't have to play it that way if you don't want to. But I, I felt like kicking him under the table. But you don't have to play it that way if you don't want to. Well, he talks, takes her out of the car. She comes back, or he comes back, and he says, okay, Bronson, I know you want to direct, so I'm going to be straight with you. There's no way Valerie's ever going to take that part. Uh, stars only want to know two things. How big is my part, and will they love me? And I thought, oh, man, I went home and told my wife, well, I really blew it. My big career opportunity. And I just totally blew it. Next morning, about nine in the morning, I get a call from Steve White, the producer. And he says, well, I, I just got a call from Valerie. And she said to me, you know, Steve, there, there was no way I was ever going to take that part. It's just too small. I only came in because of the wonderful experience I had working with you last time. But after talking to Dan... I'm in. <laughs> well, after that phone call, I was in. Uh, I was there. For, for, well, the other thing, when we finally got our director, it was this guy who'd done the first television film and done 70 other uh, television films, along with a dozen features. Uh, a guy by the name of, of William A. Graham, Billy Graham. Uh, Billy and I just smack, hit it off. Uh, he sat down with me the first day. And, and went page by page through the script, picking my brain about every character, every scene, uh, uh, styles that I had in mind for the, the camera. We, we went through the whole thing, almost sentence by sentence by sentence. Billy, was, he, he was this guy, was like, gosh, I think he was 69 years old, had a 40-year-old wife, a three-year-old daughter, rode a, a motorcycle in from the all too aptly named, as he put it, Carbon Canyon, where he'd fought the fire uh, with a garden hose, uh, saved his home when everything around him burned. Uh, he flew a helicopter. He had uh, he captained his own boat around Cape Horn. Uh, <laughs> he was wonderful. I was there at his elbow. He would even restage scenes if I quietly pulled him aside and said, you know, Billy, I don't think this quite worked and explain why. Uh, I was in the editing room. I was in the conferences with him. I was almost co-director of the film. And it's the, that movie turned out, aside from one minor little thing, uh, <laughs> minor piece of casting, to be the film I wrote because I was there all the time. I was on the same page mm -hmm. with the director. 
on the same page with the producer, and that's what almost never happens in Hollywood. But one minor detail was Tori Spelling <laughs> played the the victim, and it, I, well, let me let me put it this way: uh, you know, Peter Yates, a wonderful director, Peter Yates, who died a few years back, director of Bullet the, the Deep and a lot of great great yeah. movies. Uh, he he once said when when asked about uh, his heritage, how he would be remembered, he says, "Well, I think I'll always be remembered as uh, the man who gave Hollywood the car chase and the wet T-shirt." Well, uh, <laughs> I think uh, I'll always be remembered if I'm remembered uh, at all as the uh, the man who gave uh, the audience the Tory Spelling film and Godfather Three. Uh, that's that's my contribution to American film. <laughs> oh, that, well, that was my second career. There there were others, but those are those are the the highlights. And I'll, you know the thing that comes out of everything you've just said, which I mean a lot of things do, uh, uh, but one thing that comes out of it is just how how collaborative a process that is for good or ill, and whether uh, simultaneous collaboration or sequential collaboration, and and so forth. But you know, very collaborative. But your next creative venture was far less collaborative because you've moved into being a novelist and the amount of control that you exhibit over your own work as a novelist must have been refreshing compared to your, your film experiences. Yes. It's wonderful. <laughs> it was a wonderful antidote. Actually, there was a transitional period. I became a memoirist first. If you're, if you're interested in hearing any more about some of these stories I've told you, take a look at Confessions of a Hollywood Nobody. It's actually done pretty well. It's had a, a, a long, long shelf life. I continue to sell copies of it. Uh, and after that, I sat down to do something I'd had in mind for many, many years. Uh, I first thought about this in the late 90s. I always wondered what it'd be like to work in uh, the old studio system. Uh, and I, I was particularly curious about the post-war period, uh, which uh, fascinated me because there was so much change. Uh, and the studios were still completely in control, all powerful, but it was the cracks had already appeared. It was, it was beginning to break down. There were the Paramount consent decrees, which divorced the studios from the ownership of the theaters. They no longer had a monopoly. They could no longer own the theaters that released their movies. And this made a huge difference on down the line. There was the challenge of television. There was the breakdown of the studio star system. There was the blacklist. It was just an amazingly creative time in, in Hollywood. Well, you know, Change produces conflict. Conflict is drama. It's one of the things I have written right above my desk over here. Uh, conflict is drama. Um, action is character. Make a virtue of necessity. Well, but conflict is drama. There, there's so much conflict in that period of time. Uh, so I, I ended up setting this thing in 1947. And we're talking here about your novel, Someone to Watch Over Me, uh, which yes. is set, set during that time period. Interestingly enough, now that that title it was a very famous song, I, I believe, and uh, the, they made a Tom Berenger uh, movie uh, with that title too back in the eighties. Uh, yes, with uh, Mimi it's Rogers a, a as well. It's a Gershwin film, mm. uh, George Naira, and it, I, it was about halfway through the novel that I realized it was absolutely the right title for me. You can't copyright a title. No, nope. that's one of the things you you learn <laughs> if you're in this uh, this creative business. 
and it's been a long time since uh, the uh, the film, which most people don't even remember. So I, I wasn't uh, worried about that. No, I wouldn't be worried about it. It was a good movie, though. I liked it. Uh, Lauren Bracco was in it as well. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was a very good movie uh, by a major director who did a little thing called Aliens, among others. Oh, Ridley Scott. And uh, <laughs> it, it had that, that wonderful design that you associate mm-hmm. with all of his movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, at, at any rate, I, I had it in my head that I, I wanted my protagonist to be an actor who'd been on the verge of stardom as World War II broke out. He volunteered. He managed to survive D-Day, the Battle of the Bulge, the freeing of the death camps, and he comes home physically, emotionally, spiritually wounded with a scar across his face that means the end of his, his acting career and a scar across his soul. And the studio takes pity upon him, makes him a publicist, and he jokes that <laughs> he, he doesn't know the first thing about publicity, but it doesn't matter because what his job is is to suppress it. Suppress the bad behavior of the stars behind the camera. And uh, it's something he could do because he doesn't really care. He doesn't care about anything. And then along comes Savannah Stevens, the studio's sexpot star who is the lead in the movie in which they bet the studio. Uh, it, it, it's it's got to be a success because every dime of the studio has gone into the making of it. And she's more than a little bit problematic. She's always late to the set if she shows up at all. She demands 50, 100 takes on every shot. And he's he's the one. She and, and sometimes she just disappears. Well, that's exactly what happens. She disappears and he has to find her without any help from anyone, including the cops. He's entirely on his own because no one can know she's gone. That's the setup. And uh, it only took me about, uh, let's see, 20 years to get to it. (laughs) I've listened to some of uh, the other writers that that you've interviewed, and they're so incredibly prolific. Now, I did write 25 screenplays and and got paid handsomely for almost all of them. And four or five of them actually made it to the screen, which is a miracle. (laughs) But when it comes to books... I'm I'm clearly not nearly as 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 prolific. It took it took me, like I said, about 20 years to get to it. Uh, probably a year of thinking about it, researching it, and then I sat down and wrote it in perhaps six months, working 24/7 for all of those six months. Uh, just you know, getting up five in the morning, by 7:30 being at my desk, taking a break for lunch and the creative nap where I usually get my best ideas, then working through till five, then collapsing, watching movies in the genre at night and starting the whole thing over seven days a week until I finished the thing. That's that's the background on it. I I was very pleased to have Philip Margolin, who's got, I think it's 24 New York Times bestselling novel mysteries to his credit, to say that reading uh, someone to watch over me is like watching the, the big sleep um, or uh, say what was the other one that... Uh, the Maltese Falcon, which were pretty nice comparisons, but that's yeah. what I had in mind. I wanted to write a classic film noir, and uh, Phil felt I actually succeeded in doing that. Well, and then it was produced in audio, and anyone who listens to the sample, um, which you can do right there on Amazon or, or wherever that you, you want to pick up the book, 
the narrator that you landed only adds to that noir uh, sensibilities. I mean, he just uh, does a, tre- a tremendous job. Yeah, I uh, I found him through Adam Arkin's son, Matthew. Uh, Matthew gave me a list of four or five people that he thought would be uh, terrific at it. And I saw this name, Jack Daniel. <laughs> okay, that's one of my hero's favorite drinks. He, he consumes a lot of it in the course of, uh, in the pages of the novel. At any rate, as soon as I heard the uh, Jack samples, uh, this guy who's done major movie trailers, uh, BMW commercials, Jack in the Box commercials. I mean, every one of us has heard his voice at one point or another, but he'd never done uh, a novel, a book on, uh, they're not on tape anymore, uh, <laughs> an audible book. Uh, and he read the first chapter and committed to doing this thing. Uh, I, I, I was thrilled. I mean, I'm very, very lucky to get him, though there, there was a part of me that wanted to do it myself. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Since uh, Jack Shannon, my uh, my hero, is uh, at least a part of me. They all are, it, right? <laughs> yeah, they all are, as, as different as the characters may be. They all are. Well, so we go from university professor, aspiring author, to reader, to producer, story, top story dog, uh, screenplay author, or I guess screenplay writer. I mean, you, you've lived a, a ton of lives. Now you've written a novel. So the big question before we go is, is there going to be another novel or is there going to be another life? <laughs> well, I'm hoping there's going to be another novel. I'm uh, playing around with that even as as we, sweet, we speak. I mean, Jack has, uh, uh, in, in uh, Someone to Watch Over Me, he is a publicist at uh, Titanic Pictures, uh, which lives up to its name in, in many ways. <laughs> Though he's, uh, he's kind of skeptical about it himself. Uh, he starts out and he, said, uh, he says, I'm a nursemaid, uh, 6'2", 6'2", built like a heavyweight, a dandy scar across my face. And what do I do? I babysit for the studios. One studio, actually. Titanic Pictures. Big. Unsinkable like the ship. Uh, well, <laughs> he ends up trying to sink it in the course of, of the book. And uh, he ends up uh, uh, no longer able to work in the studio system. And in, in the new book, he's going to be working as a, as a drugstore cowboy, a stuntman uh, for Poverty Row, which most people don't know about. But uh, in the heyday of, of the big studios, there were all these little fly-by-night outfits. They were mostly over at Sunset and Gower, uh, where, well, the Sunset Gower studio is today. And uh, they, they made pictures overnight for next to nothing. And that's that's where he's going to be in the next book when uh, uh, the, co- his, the co-star star in his breakthrough movie comes to him with a really serious problem. So I'm hoping that the next will be that. You know, I, I recently saw... A wonderful interview with Carl Reiner, Mel Brooks, Dick Van Dyke, and Norman Lear, the producer of All in the Family and Maude and all those mm-hmm. wonderful 70s and 80s series. And uh, these guys were all in their 90s, and they were still doing it. You know, I, I mean, Carl Reiner uh, said uh, every morning, how, how, how is it that he stayed so active and so sharp? He says, well, every morning I get up, I read the obituaries, and if I'm not there, I know it's going to be a good day. Uh, <laughs> And then they, they talk to uh, to Norman Lear, and he says, well, how do you do it? 
by the way, Norman Lear, I think he just turned 100 or is about to. He's still producing uh, mm -hmm. new versions of, of classics like All in the Family and Maude. Uh, I saw one of the, the one in All in the Family, All in the Family starred Woody Harrelson. And it was terrific. I mean, uh, this guy at the age of 99 is producing things on television. And he said, well, I don't look back. My, I only look forward. So the, the question I ask myself every day is, next? And that's the question I ask myself. Next? <laughs> so we'll see. Well, Dan, it's been really great hearing all of these stories. And uh, you, you've written what appears to be a wonderful novel. I am looking forward to reading it. Uh, I've enjoyed your uh, your experiences that you shared. And uh, certainly the uh, other book that you mentioned, The Confessions of a Hollywood <laughs> Nobody, is definitely on my list as well. Uh, I want to tell you thanks a lot for coming on the show. Well, thank you. I've, I've had a terrific time. Really, thanks so much. All right, folks, there you go. Dan Bronson, an interesting guy, like I told you. you. I challenge you to find where I should have cut something out there. It's just impossible. Just an interesting guy. I've been listening to his book on audio. It is performed uh, as well as we discussed, and I'm really enjoying it. He's got a, a great voice, and it really fits the time period that the book is set in. And when I say great voice, I mean both the author's voice and the narrator's voice on the audiobook. So uh, feel free to check that out or any of Dan's work. Uh, on the next episode of Wrong Place, Right Crime, we're not going to get any shorter. It's technically another open and shut episode, but it's a double shot. Uh, you were first going to hear from A.B. Patterson, a, a retired law enforcement officer in Australia who uh, writes crime fiction. And then we're also going to hear from a very old friend of mine that I haven't spoken to in quite some time, actually, Bill Cameron a fellow Oregonian. And so uh, I'm going to do both interviews next week. So it'll be another uh, feature length episode, but with two people and you get to enjoy uh, both of those perspectives, very different individuals, both very talented. And then of course, after that, we'll get to the feature episode for the month of February, which is Susan Wingate. So uh, it is a hat trick of overly long episodes, uh, a lot of uh, extra editing and time at the console for me, but more listening pleasure for you. A quick Zafiro update for you. The Bricks and Cam Jobs series that I wrote with Eric Beatner is being promoted starting on the 3rd of March, 2022 through the 7th. The shortlist, the second book in the series, will be free. The other two books in the series, The Backlist and the Finale, The Getaway List, will both be 99 cents. A number of my other titles will also be 99 cents, including the Jack McCrae mystery at this point in my life and the first Sandy Banks thriller, The Last Horseman. And all three of my books that I wrote with Larry Kelter, who is also running some specials on his Stephanie Chalisi series. So if you like the stuff I did with Larry, definitely check that work out. If you're hearing this outside of uh, March 3 to 7 of 2022, don't worry. They go on the special frequently enough, and they're very reasonably priced anyway. All right. I want to say thanks to Dan for coming on the show, for being so entertaining and having some excellent stories to share, uh, and to Down Now Books for sponsoring the show. And of course, you, the listener, for being here, for checking out these different authors. Uh, if one of them appeals to you, please go that extra bit to, to check out their books, whether it's through the library, through a bookstore, uh, online, 
uh, or even just, uh, you know, scooting over to their website and exploring a little further. They'll appreciate it. I know I do, just like I appreciate you being here each week. Uh, next week, we will be talking to A.B. Patterson and then to Bill Cameron. Until then, this is Frank Zafiro reminding you that sometimes you got to be in the wrong place to write crime. <laughs>